Ahoy! It is your boy, and today is Sunday, October 15th, and uh, yay! I started looking at my thesis finally, yay! Just now, just a couple hours ago, I, literally two hours ago, I started looking at my thesis for the first time, yay! Yay, I should have come to some kind type of conclusions about what I'm going to write about, but I'm actually feeling more confused than I did before, yay! So yes, today I, you know, I've actually spoken with some friends about it this week, and uh, every single day this, I mean, I, I, it's been this way since the start of the semester, but I've been, I've, I've been hyper aware of it this week, which is every single day I told myself, all right, today's the day you're going to start looking at this thing. It only needs to be an hour or two hours or whatever, but you finally got to crack open the books and look at this thesis that I have, I'm supposed to have been working on for two semesters now. And although... I did commit some time to gathering resources and actually reading a lot of sources and and even meeting with my thesis advisor a couple times last semester. Um, I have not looked at it in like three or four months. And uh, here we are halfway through the semester or thereabouts. And uh, this at least 40-page paper needs to be done in a month and a half. And I'm, I'm perfectly honest, especially after today, I am still not sure what I want to write about, and um, I'm going to talk through it a little bit, and this may be incredibly boring for you, um, but it's just what's on my mind. Literally two hours ago, I set a timer on my phone for two hours to just go through the material, see what I have, and just reorient myself to the task at hand, and um, I actually had a conversation with my brother yesterday about it, and... um, he gave me some very practical advice, which sounds very obvious, and uh, it's something that's flitted through the arena of my thoughts as well, but not something I was able to commit to, which is obviously just carve out time each week, uh, or you know, just make it part of your schedule, schedule it the same way you would any other class, and just show up for that time, and uh, and treat it as sacrosanct, and, and th- nothing impinges on it the same way nothing impinges on you showing up to class, for the most part. So I did. I found two-hour time blocks three times a week that I'm going to dedicate to this thing. And um, at the end of the day, I think no matter what I go with, and there's a couple things kind of floating around, and and I'll I'll sort of talk about those. No matter what I go with, as long as I commit to that time period, it's not going to be a problem. Um, At the end of the day, this is just an honors thesis. It's a volitional paper. It's not something that's going to get published. It's not canonical. It just needs to be uh, it just needs to demonstrate, and I'm sort of regurgitating a lot of what my brother sort of indicated to me. You know, it just needs to demonstrate that I'm capable of doing research and that I would be functional in a graduate program. Uh, but it doesn't need to be uh, anything I hang my hat on or, um, you know, uh, yeah, it's it's not my doctoral thesis or anything like that. So um, it just needs to be good enough if that. Um, but it's, I guess the hard part for me is I'm kind of feeling two things. Um the initial idea, I'll, I'll put it this way. So the initial idea, um, if you've listened to this record, um, you've heard me talk about I Ching or I Ching or I Ching or the Book of Changes, depending on what you want to call it, um, which was a very formative book for me. And, um, you know, I'm not that interested in going into the text itself, but what is true of I Ching is that it's actually appended with these different commentaries. Uh, which just sort of comment on the text itself, but also have these other elaborations or whatever. So um, the idea was to do something with that. 
And um, as I was sort of formulating this idea, I was taking a class called The History of Heaven. And this was a course that had always stood out to me. Uh, Meaning, when I chose my majors, I didn't really decide on the majors themselves. What I really did was spend some time on the Berkeley website and kind of looked at all the classes I was interested in taking and let that determine what my major would be, which major would allow me to take most of the classes that I want to take. And initially, based on where I was kind of oriented at the time, it was toward you know, literature. And so looking at the classes in the English department, in the, um, you know, these various departments, and, and I ended up seeing myself spending a lot of time in comparative literature. And so that's how I decided, okay, I'm going to choose a comparative literature major because that'll, you know, allow me to, to take most of the classes that I want to take. However, choosing that major required that I learn to read in a foreign language. So because I had been reading Chinese philosophy for a long time, I thought, or my initial thought was, you know, if I could learn a language to gain access to a body of literature, what would it be? And because I had been reading Chinese philosophy for a long time, and that was very meaningful for me, including texts like I Ching, I was like, uh, well, I'll just learn Chinese so that I can read these, you know, texts that I enjoy in the original language. However, once I start looking at that department, I realized that there's so many courses in there that I want to take, I decide to double major in both comparative literature and East Asian religion, thought, and culture. So seeing that this is my double major, the idea was to maybe have a thesis that was comparative in some way, where I was comparing Western uh, and Eastern culture. Seemed to be uh, a nice way to sort of uh, tie a bow around this double major that I sort of had. Okay, so as I'm looking at courses, though, this is the point, is I did stumble on this class called The History of Heaven. And uh, the way it's sort of articulated in the summary, from what I remember, was that it just sort of uh, explicates how various cultures around the world have formulated this idea of heaven, uh, and that uh, and, and how is that image of heaven mirrored in their governments and in their cultures and in their literature. And so I thought, that's right up my alley. I would love to take that class. However, as I'm selecting... Uh, courses each semester, I'm realizing that this course doesn't actually fulfill a requirement for either major. So this was a a kind of a teachable moment for me, which is, although it wasn't included to fulfill this requirement in the East Asian Religion, Thought, and Culture major, it certainly seemed to me that it should qualify. And so I basically emailed the advisor and asked them to take a look at this course description, and before I even took the course, I reached out to the professor before meeting them and asked for a syllabus um, so that I could, one, review it myself, but also maybe provide it to the administration so they could see if it fulfilled what they needed for this requirement. And upon that review, they decided that it did. So now, henceforth, if you happen to be an East Asia Religion, Thought, and Culture major and you need a B course requirement, you can go ahead and take History of Heaven, thanks to your boy. So, um... Where am I going with this? I'm saying, yeah, that was a very important class for me. Um, I absolutely loved it. And uh, it's taught by a professor named Brian Bauman. And basically the kind of thesis of the course is that science, as it was originally understood, is very very different from modern science. Modern science is a methodology to arrive at truths about the nature of reality or the underlying world. Whereas his thesis is that science, as it was originally understood, was a way to describe 
empirical phenomenon. And by phenomenon, that's usually the celestial bodies and the night sky and these types of things. And how does this desire to uh, understand the uh, empirical movements of nature of the of the night sky how is that reflected in creation stories in literally world genesis how does this uh again trying to make sense of celestial bodies uh how does that manifest in stories of creation and uh and world organization uh and the idea is that you know you you often find that there are unify when you look at creation stories across cultures you find that there are unifying themes and so he summarizes these characteristics these characteristics which are observable in all these creation stories can be summarized um although they manifest very differently they kind of can be summarized across you know i think there's like 16 points or whatever and and he, uh, he calls those the first principles of science so the idea for my paper was to look at a western cosmogony, which is a creation story, and look at a Eastern cosmogony, a Chinese cosmogony, and sort of explicate how these two different stories, although superficially they're very different, actually conform um, or, yeah, are sort of scaffolded by these first principles of science. And so, um, although Yi Jing is a very terse, very weird text, it's very hard to understand, it itself doesn't have uh, a creation story. One of the commentaries that it that is appended to it, it's actually called the Great Commentary or the Great Appendix, uh, actually does have a creation story in it. And then conversely, another text that we read in this course, we, uh, we, we did not look at Yi Jing specifically in this History of Heaven course, but what we did read was a cosmogony by Plato called Timaeus. And that may not be uh, a Plato dialogue that you're familiar with. Most people know things like, I don't know, they read uh, Republic or they read, um, I'm trying to think of another one very quickly, Euthyphro or something like that. Not that I really know those texts very well. But those are the types of Plato texts that most people know. Timaeus is not one that people really read, but it is a cosmogony. It is a creation story. And so the idea, that, that was the initial idea. And so for that reason, I approached Professor Bauman and asked if he would advise my thesis. The situation I'm finding myself in, however, is although that is a generative idea and that is a paper, so to speak, it's really just a descriptive kind of paper. It's not really an argument, or even if it is an argument, it's not really one that I feel is defensible. Meaning, although I sit in Professor Bauman's class and I feel like his macro theory of these first principles of science is incredibly stimulating and like meant for me and you know, it was a very spooky class to be in because it was it, it was really the key in making sense of a lot of things that I had been trying to make sense of uh, in my own mind for a couple years, especially since stumbling on I Ching. However, I also realize that there's a way in which these macro theories, you know, the, the, the statement that uh, all creation stories conform to these criteria is um, a bit kind of like, you know, when you read something like Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, or uh, these kind of macro theory assertions by people like Freud, where they say all people fall into this category, or all cultures, or like the Jungian archetypes, right? Every culture uses these symbols, and across cultures, they mean these different things. Well, that really sort of overlooks like cultural specificity. And especially if you're looking 
you know, if that's the kind of the lenses that you're seeing the world through, it's very easy for things to conform to that. Uh, when oftentimes when we look deeper at these things, we find that although they superficially have resemblances, they're actually very different. So, you know, I'm not sure if 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 Bauman's theory is very defensible, uh, but it's still very fascinating. So the idea is that although that is a descriptive paper that I could write and might be very interesting and might even fulfill the brief, it's not really an argument, right? I'm not making a claim. And also I was provide. I'm taking this other course right now called Buddhism in China, and the teacher provided this very useful kind of outline for how a paper, uh, I was going to say should, but I should say very often could be structured. But the thing that it um, uh, that I find helpful about it is that it really advocates for specificity. The more specific your question, the more specific your argument, the more generative the paper can be. One, it's sort of like any creative work, right? Like, I'm actually thinking about uh, Matthew Barney's Drawing Restraint, which is a series where Matthew Barney is this sort of visual artist. A lot of people know his Cree Master Cycle. He was married to Bjork. Uh, but he had this thing called Drawing Restraint, where he would, like, restrain himself in different ways and try to draw or something like that. Um, I don't think his Cree Master Cycle was a part of it. But the idea was that limitations are actually generative for art. If everything's available to you, then you're kind of lost in the soup. It's very easy to get soupy with things. Whereas the more specific you are, one, you delimit your research. You kind of limit the sandbox that you're going to be playing in, so you make your job easier. But it also makes things easier for the reader. It helps you locate an argument and prove it. Um, um, and so, yeah, there's something about this, you know, kind of playing in the first principles of science sandbox, which feels kind of soupy. Um, and kind of wanting something a little bit more specific. So the thing that really stood out to me, where I thought like Timaeus and I Ching could actually be comparable, is that although I Ching is actually comprised of these 64 different hexagrams, it's very clear that the two prominent ones are the first and second one. One, uh, I'm not going to use the Chinese names, I'll just call them, and this is according to the Wilhelm Baines translation, one is called the creative the second one is called uh, the receptive. And the uh, I Ching is basically 64 hexagrams, which are composed of every possible permutation of broken and unbroken lines. And the first one, creative, is all solid lines, and the receptive is all broken lines. And the I Ching attributes all kinds of different dualities to these two hexagrams. They're presented as like the mother and father of all the other hexagrams. Um, they're the ones from which all the other ones derive. And they're also attributed with things like masculine and feminine qualities, light and dark, right? So all these kind of pluralisms are sort of attributed to one or the other. They're seen as literally the yin and yang of the other one, the light and the dark of the other one. But the way that they're talked about kind of in a cos, cosmo, uh, how do I say this, in a, in a sort of... Uh, I guess in the context of like world genesis, is they're seen as like the, um, literally there's something about the creative, the hexagram of the creative, which is the generative force in the world, right? It's the masculine, it's the phallic, it's the seminal, if that makes sense. And then there's something about the receptive, which is it is the receiver of all things generative. It is the thing by which, you know, this sort of ephemeral generative force in the cosmos that all things come about through is sort of received by this ineffable force, this ineffable fe ineffable feminine force uh, 
um, through which things come into existence, like birth, right? So it makes sense that it's sort of uh, attributed with feminine qualities. It has this sort of birthing uh, uh, characteristic to it. And it's also receptive when you think about anatomical sex, right? There's sort of the creative and there's literally the receptive. The woman receives the man, this type of stuff. And it's very interesting to me that when you read Timaeus, um, although it's a very different type of creation story, and in some ways <clears throat> it's a little more laughable because Plato actually makes a lot of very concrete and very literal claims about how the universe was created, whereas I Ching or other kind of ancient Chinese cosmogonies are very kind of obtuse, and they really lean into the, the mystery and the ineffability of things. And even when you read texts like the Tao Te Ching or Lao Tzu, they are really transparent about the fact that they're talking about something that's impossible to talk about, which I think is very interesting. Um, for someone who came from like a kind of a humanist slash skeptic slash atheist background, it was it's very interesting, and I find it very appealing to read these kind of you know, musings on like the ultimate truth of life, and but also this concession that we're kind of not only operating, but speaking from the fringe of our understanding. We're doing the best we can to sort of describe these things that are actually impossible to describe. But uh, Plato, on the other hand, makes very literal, literal claims about uh, how things came about. And you, you know, the sort of anachronism or the ancient quote science that he uses is very apparent. So, but there is a passage where he very explicitly talks about this idea of like the generative force in creation. Um, and and then conversely, the sort of uh, the you know he sort of posits this thing that can't be described, but it is the receptive quality of the phenomenal world that we live in. It is that through which all things that come into being are received. And then he goes on to call this the mother and the father of creation. And so uh, you know, uh, to me, the parallels between that and Eugene were very clear. Um, and so even though as I'm talking about it, I, I feel like it may feel a little uh, soupier than maybe what I was talking before about this kind of macro theory of first principles of science, I actually feel like that might actually be a more concrete thing to talk about. Rather than talk about these two cosmogonies uh, broadly or as a whole, trying to take them in all together, just talking about these two very specific things with, which in each, uh, within each of them. You know, this idea of the masculine and the feminine, the generative and the receptive. How do how are these two concepts present in both of these cosmogonies? How do they function in each of them? And then the bigger question is why are they this way? Contextually, you know, what was going on in the period in which this commentary was written? Um, that this is the story that gets played out. Uh, how does this how is this reflected in maybe the politics? or the culture, or the society of China at the time. And then conversely, the same thing with, you know, ancient uh, Greece with Plato. So anyway, uh, as I'm talking about this, I realize I'm kind of boring myself, because there's also a way in which at the end of the day, I've actually kind of lost interest in this topic altogether. Um, and also talking about it, I feel a bit eggheadish, but um, so be it. So that's kind of the impasse I find myself at. I spent a lot of time today just kind of reviewing the materials that I had at hand, kind of looking at some notes I had made last semester, um, and even kind of going through some old papers that I had written, because this is a topic I've kind of danced around for other classes, uh, and just seeing if there's anything I could recycle. 
you know, I guess I'm also saying I don't want to make my job harder than it has to be. So if there's anything I can repurpose to sort of uh, toss into this, you know, this final paper, then I'm certainly willing to use it. But uh, yeah, after spending a couple hours kind of looking at these materials, um, I still don't feel committed to any path. And also, this is a little stranger to talk about. I think feeling where my momentum is kind of abandoning this idea of this, you know, Bauman's first principles of science, I really feel like um, if that's, if, if it's really a different direction that I want to go in, then I kind of, yeah, it feels heavy handed to say it this way, but it means I've kind of chosen the wrong advisor. Meaning if what I really want to take is this different route, then, you know, there's professors that I have since uh, taken more classes from and have spent time with that I think not only would, maybe be able to, you know, offer more in terms of feedback on this paper specifically. But when I apply to grad school, uh, might have a little bit more weight or gravitas, or uh, even if they are able to write a letter of recommendation for me, uh, I still think the, the fact that they would have uh, advised a paper that I wrote would, would speak volumes as well. So I admit I feel a little strange about that. Meaning when I find myself in these situations where, you know, I've, well, I was going to say, well, the way I feel today is like, well, maybe I made the wrong choice. Um, it's easy for me to blame myself and say, like, I should have somehow known. But at the end of the day, it's really only through this process of like thinking about what I want to write about and gathering materials. And, you know, I don't know, literally, uh, I was going to say professional, but educational development, I'm not, uh, scholastic development is probably the way to put it. I get a better sense of like, you know, what does a successful uh, paper look like that I've kind of reevaluated. But at the end of the day, I'm also feeling like it's much too late in the process to to kind of jump ship. And uh, so whatever, we'll chalk it up to a learning experience, I suppose. But but I guess the bright side, I'm not trying not to end on a bad note here. The bright side is that I've uh, finally started to look at the thing that I told myself I needed to look at. I, I've, I've literally spent most, literally every night I go to bed, I'll find myself kind of looking at the ceiling and saying, man, tomorrow you really need to open that thing. And not just because the date is looming, but there's, there's this other thing I always experience in my life, which is I always, you know, I'll have something that I don't want to look at. <clears throat> For some reason, taxes is coming to mind. Uh, I've never not paid my taxes on time. But I do feel this looming anxiety around tax season. And um, it's very easy for me to put it off. And uh, when I finally get around to it, though, I always find that it's never as bad as I anticipated. And once it's over, I just feel exponentially better. It's just never the, uh, it's never the ordeal or the problem that I sort of make it out to be. You know, I, I and, and the worst part, too, is I have no I have nothing to point to where that's ever been a terrible experience. It's entirely inside my own head. It's this horror story I have just decided to tell myself for some reason. But, you know, as I keep putting things off, the anxiety builds and it's just like you create this literally a mountain out of a molehill. But of, but of course, when you finally turn the corner, when you crack at things, uh, all of a sudden this pressure is released. And it doesn't mean that the thing disappears entirely. But all of a sudden, it's not nearly as insurmountable as it felt, you know, meaning although I don't have really clarity on what the next step is going to be, I still need to think about it a little bit. I've already kind of cracked the seal 
on this paper. And so not that my anxiety disappears altogether, but it's alleviated somewhat. And at least that anxiety is now directed at kind of a specific target rather than just kind of being, you know, rather just, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like a, rather than a, a, um, uh, a swarm of bees kind of, of, uh, uh, flitting around your head. It's just the one bee or the one fly, you know? Um, so anyway, I remember talking last time about how far out I feel like I can get on these weekends. And it's always uh, surprising to me that I'm going to be able to get back to my life as usual. And although I've done a better job, not a perfect job, of like kind of trying to maintain some semblance of normalcy during this weekend, you know, like not going to bed at like five or six, which I think I did for some insane reason last weekend. I ended up going to bed at like three, three, three in the morning last night. But, you know, I got up and I did laundry and uh, did some dishes and, uh, you, know, cra you know, I told myself I was going to crack open this thesis. I did that. I had this other class. I'm just so far ahead in the reading. It's ridiculous, but it's a, you know, it's a Confucius class and uh, it's very easy for me to do that. It's what I really enjoy reading. So um, it's not that it's not homework, but it doesn't really feel that way. So it's very easy for me to... Uh, work ahead in that class, but I've done a lot of that this weekend. But conversely, I've also done, uh, I've, I watched a couple movies. One is this one on Netflix, which I really recommend. It's called Fair Play. And, you know, I tried talking about this with my brother, and I really couldn't say much because I don't want to spoil things. So I'll say this. I, I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Um, but if you haven't seen it, go ahead and, and watch it because uh, I'm about to maybe spoil some things that I think. It's one of those films that or I heard someone say once that they actually don't give a shit about spoilers because their argument anyway, I don't know that they really believed it as much as it just sounded like something they maybe felt good to say, but they felt like it, like if a movie is really good, it shouldn't matter if you know the plot, the, what is, uh, entertaining about it is the journey. Like a good movie is one, which even if you knew the end, you would still enjoy the movie because the journey itself is, uh, the experience. It's not, you know, it's not the ending that makes a movie. A good movie is one that you just enjoy kind of sitting in the entire time. And I agree with a lot of that. Um, but I also think that, you know, you know, the classic example for me is The Usual Suspects. If you know the ending of, a, of The Usual Suspects, it's absolutely going to alter or take away from the ending of the film, right? Because, um, yeah, there's also something about like the, the slow revealing of information that is interesting in a film too. And this movie is, it's not super complex, but there's something about the way that it unfolds that's very interesting. So again, if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It's on Netflix. It's called Fair Play. And it starts off, and when you're watching it, you think, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get into this. It has like a young couple, and they're very much in love, and they're very kind of, you know, their relationship is very sexually charged. I think when you actually look the movie up, it'll say like it's like an erotic thriller or something like that. And there is like kind of some sexual components, but, you know, it's not like... Uh, I've never seen it, but I know like Nine and a Half Weeks is a movie that stands out. There was this kind of whole genre of film in the 90s when uh, pornography wasn't as accessible as it is now, where there was this kind of genre of film that kind of existed in the nether gloom between like, you know, softcore pornography and like an R rating. And, um, and, and yeah, so I'm thinking like films like Nine and a Half Weeks. There's another one with Heather Graham that I remember. I just can't remember the title of it. Um, 
Um, but yeah, so this film is nothing like that. So I'm not really sure where the, the, the Appalachian erotic drama or erotic thriller comes from. But they're like a young couple, and they're young professionals. They're working in finance in New York City. And the way it's sort of presented to you is this young man, He's very, they're both beautiful, but he's sort of, you know, they're both working in finance, but he, you know, his attitude, he's like, he's an upstart. He's kind of a yuppie. Um, it seems like, at least in his mind, all the elements in his life are coming together. He's got the job. He's got this beautiful girl. And so, oh, and they're like very physically attracted to each other. So they're very much in like the romance period of their relationship. And he's feeling like everything's kind of coming together. So within the first like 10 minutes of the movie, he like proposes to her. And uh, we see them kind of go home. and But there's still this kind of looming something. There's this kind of tension kind of sitting there where you feel like there's just something, uh, what's the word? Uh, they're jumping the gun on this engagement a little bit. They both know it's kind of crazy, but they're going to take the leap. And then it's revealed to you that they actually work together and they're peers at this sort of finance office. I don't know what you would call their job or what they do exactly, but they're like buying and selling shares uh, at their, I don't know, their investment firm or whatever. And sort of the inciting incident is that someone in the office is fired. They call him the PM. I don't know what that stands for. Uh, um, something manager? Yeah, I don't know. But, you know, someone above them. And uh, this young woman hears anecdotally over the water cooler that her partner is actually up for the promotion, is going to take this guy's spot. So she's very excited for him. They kind of celebrate. They have this sort of sexually charged evening. They're drinking champagne. And basically this guy really feels like he, he's on the cusp of like coming into his own, you know. And it turns out the next day when they go to the office, this young woman gets pulled in by the manager, the sort of demagogue, the... Um, you know, the alpha male, the president of their firm or whatever, who everybody kind of looks up to, kind of like the Leonardo DiCaprio equivalent of like Wolf of Wall Street. And he pulls her in his office and basically gives her the job. And the nature of their relationship completely changes. And all of a sudden, this guy who kind of was looking at the landscape of his life as like, I got the job, I got the beautiful girl, he real that the power dynamic in their relationship completely shifts and the way this starts to unfold and the insidious ways it starts to creep into his own presentation it's just like very delicious to watch so at first you're kind of like what the fuck is this movie i'm not really sure i'm gonna get it but then once it gets its tenter hooks into you it really starts to reel you in and it becomes this really kind of tasteful and interesting movie that deals with some very relevant contemporary things without being too um, uh, I don't know, simple about them, you know, it's like, uh, I was, for some reason, the movie that came to mind as well is this movie Force Majeure by, I can't think of his name right now, I feel stupid, but he's one of my favorite filmmakers of, of, I don't know, maybe the last 10 years or so, um, but it's this film about a, a father who's on a ski vacation with his family, they're sitting by the lodge, this outdoor sort of lounge area this avalanche comes and he basically grabs his cell phone and runs away from his family without assisting them lo and behold the avalanche is not nearly as bad as people thought it was going to be and everybody survives unharmed and once the literally the dust clears or is it the dust settles yeah he has to sheepishly return to his family and the rest of the film is this playing out of the tension between the mother and the husband um, thinking about, you know, how do they address the fact that when 
disaster struck, the guy who was supposed to be the protector, the provider of the family, basically abandoned them. And he becomes very defensive and, and insists that it didn't happen, that this is all a figment of her imagination. And so this movie, Fair Play, is a bit about that as well, because clearly this guy is disturbed, and as she's trying to kind of probe him and get him to talk about the way that this is affecting him, he becomes increasingly defensive. He's all of a sudden looking for eccentric ways to kind of uh, develop himself. And um, it's interesting to watch her as well, because she has to kind of uh, come face-to-face with how she exists in the relationship and how she, how he sees her. Because just yesterday... She was the hot girl that he kind of owned, and now she's his boss. And the worst part is as she's in her position, this person, this guy who's been presenting to her and she kind of understood as someone who is potentially successful, um, maybe even the person who was just yesterday up for her position, as she gains more insight and comes to the center of this agency, she realizes that this guy is only hired as a favor, that he sucks, that he's doing awful at his job, and that he's actually up for getting fired. And so it's it's just the kind of you know it's just a very the way I think force majeure in this film both very tastefully deal with masculinity and toxic masculinity and I'm not going to go into like the final act of this movie Fair Play but it really comes to comes to a head but I'm trying to think of a movie that does it badly and one's not coming to mind but we have all these sort of socially relevant topics that everybody's eager to make a film about that I just I don't think there's they don't think they handle a lot of these topics with a lot of art. But I was very surprised to find this movie Fair Play, which I thought was just going to kind of be a kind of a mindless thriller or something like that. And I think it's probably one of the movies that I've seen recently that handles uh, this kind of contemporary topic, especially the topic of toxic masculinity and deals with it in a way that is uh, not only, I think, fair, but is very artful as well. And uh, so I highly recommend it. The other movie that I've been thinking about, and I ended up watching it, well, two things. I I sort of told myself I was going to watch one movie last night, and I ended up watching Doctor Sleep, and Doctor Sleep is basically the sequel to The Shining, and I, I don't know if I was talking about it, but I have been watching some videos of Stephen King recently. He was a big part of my childhood, and, and uh, one of the reasons that I started reading books, even, and... Um, Gosh, forgive me. I yeah, I don't know. I, I I can't remember if I was talking about it in this record or um, with somebody in person. But yeah, his videos have just kind of popped up. Interviews with him and and him doing kind of public appearances and speeches have kind of shown shown up in my YouTube feed recently. Recently, so I've seen some of those. And as we're approaching Halloween, all of the streaming services are kind of foregrounding all the horror movies. And uh, so I, I I there was one night like maybe like a year or two ago where I started watching it. And, uh, it just, you know, not that it got too scary, but there was, I was right on the cusp of like a horror scene and I was just, it was just abundantly clear to me that I was not in the mood for it that night. And so I turned it off and went on with my life and did something else. But I thought I'm going to give this movie a throw, especially because, you know, it was pretty well reviewed if I, if I remember correctly. Um, obviously Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, which we'll get to Stanley Kubrick here in a moment, hopefully. But, uh, the Shining is very formative. Now, I've always been a little conflicted about The Shining uh, as a film, which is I know it's very formative. I know uh, it's uh, supposed to be brilliant, and it's also very boring. And when I've watched these conversations with uh, Stephen King recently, I think he happens to be right, uh, meaning I'm, I hope I'm not just regurgitating his opinion 
or adopting his opinion of late because I've been exposed to it, I think he actually gets it right, which is, uh, if you've read the book, you realize that there's a lot more time invested in the family dynamic. And, uh, you know, really The Shining is about alcoholism, and it's about, like, the unraveling of a family. And the haunted house and the and the monsters are really just an allegory for this kind of dysfunctional father. Um, although those elements kind of show up in The Shining, you never get the sense, in the Kubrick version, you never get the sense that the family really cares about each other. The exposition happens so quickly, and, um, you know, some people, I, I have heard stories about how Shelley Duvall was treated during the making of that movie, but I also just never sensed that maybe even under perfect circumstances, she would have kind of risen to the occasion. You know, my experience of Shelley Duvall prior to that was fairy tale theater or something like that. It was these Betamax tapes that I would rent out of the library that was Shelley Duvall, and she was like the narrator of these like fairy tales that were kind of acted out. And I remember there was like The Princess and the Pea, or Beauty and the Beast, or Aladdin. Um, and uh, gosh, I would love to get my hands on some of that stuff. But uh, yeah, I'm not really sure she had the uh, the chops to really to really um, um, pull off maybe a little bit more pathos. Although she screams like a motherfucker in The Shining. I mean, she plays terrified very well. But uh, where am I going with this? I think Stephen King's criticism of the film is that, yeah, you're never really invested in the family, and although it looks very good, it's just not a very good horror movie. It's almost as if like Stephen King set out to you know, make the uh, archetypal horror film, but hadn't really spent a, a lot of time learning about the genre. It's just not very scary, and, uh, and although it looks beautiful, it, it, there's just something kind of soulless about it. It just kind of seems like so much blocking or so much staging or something like that. Um, but I heard that the sequel was good. I heard Dr. Sleep was very good. And so I start watching it and it sucked. It has kind of, you know, it's funny. It's like, I, I haven't read the novel of Dr. Sleep, but I bet it's probably pretty accurate because it seems to have, you know, as prolific as Stephen King is, and as, although there are many good books that he's written, there's also enduring flaws that he has. Um, there's always kind of a B story or something that you just don't want to spend a lot of time with that we just kind of get sucked into a lot. And so I felt like this movie was kind of fucked from the jump because on the one hand, as you're watching it, you're hating it because it is entirely referent to the original film. It's actually the most impressive part about it is from a production standpoint where they literally rebuilt all of the sets from the original Overlook Hotel. Now, I haven't compared it frame by frame, you know, so maybe there are some glaring uh, differences that I'm, that I'm are just not registering for me. But I think just from watching it one time, there are many scenes that look like they were actually shot on the exact same location as the original film. Now, I don't think that that's true. I think both of those movies were shot on, the interiors at least were shot on sound stages. But it's the, the the level of detail is actually is pretty insane. But that's more of a production standpoint. So the part though is that you're sort of watching the film and you're kind of rolling your eyes at how referential it is to the first film. Um, you know, a lot of these movies that just get made now that are either sequels or remakes of original movies, you realize they're not really adding anything to the story. They're just kind of trading on familiarity to get people to get asses in seats. And so that feels like it's there. And the other part that sucks about the movie though is there's this whole other 
plot about this cult of people who look for people who quote shine like Dan Danny Torrance did people who have this kind of telekinesis power right and they basically like feed off their souls or something like that so you're kind of introduced to this whole cult or cast of characters that are really kind of lame and uh not really ominous they just kind of seem kind of I don't know uh flaccid phantoms and uh i don't know i don't know what that means exactly except they're just not really scary and um and uh uh you know you're just not really enjoying it so um i think the best part about the movie is ewan mcgregor's american accent which is very convincing um but uh other than that it's you know the, the child actor tries their best but uh you know, finding good child actors who can carry films are very, very rare. And um, although this one tries their best, it's it just it's a little strange. And uh, so I don't recommend it. However, the real point of all this, and it's interesting because it feels arbitrary, but maybe there's a Stanley Cooper connection, is after watching this movie, I was actually kind of doing some music stuff, which I've been doing a little bit in the evening. I've, I'll just sort of open up live, uh, Ableton Live, and just kind of start messing around with drums and synthesizers and just kind of putting down musical ideas. But as I was kind of getting ready for bed and I thought, oh, I'll lay down and do some reading or something like that. I actually, you know, because I had watched Dr. Sleep on, I was going to say HBO. They've rebranded as Max, which is insane to me. But uh, be that as it may, I saw that 2001 was kind of recommended in the queue. Like, hey, if you like this, you should watch 2001. Now, I've seen 2001 a thousand times, but the reason it was kind of on my mind, I'm sure tangentially my association with The Shining and Stanley Kubrick, but I had also seen a video of Louis C.K. talking about how brilliant the opening of 2001 is. And he's absolutely right, meaning, although it's very strange, um, when you actually look at it, it's still, for, for when it was made, it's pretty amazing that you have these people in ape suits who... You know, although you know that they're people in suits, it's actually, you feel like the makeup should, like, it's actually better than, like, Planet of the Apes. There's something very convincing about it. And the fact that you have them kind of uh, acting alongside these uh, boars or something like that who are just kind of hanging out with them. And there's even a shot where, like, a leopard or something, like, jumps on one of them. And it looks pretty fucking convincing. Um, but the point is this, he was just kind of talking about the opening of that movie. So... I was kind of primed for it, and I thought, ah, oh, what the hell, I'll sort of start 2001. I definitely won't sit through all of it, but I'll start watching it. But lo and behold, I ended up watching the entire movie, which I think is about maybe two and a half hours long or something like that. And the thing about 2001 is, yes, it's very good. Yes, it's a classic. Um, it's a movie that's very formative for me, and I've talked about I have this kind of looming creative project that's been on my mind, a big portion of it is kind of predicated on, on you know, the idea of how in uh, 2001. Um, but that movie is also very slow. I mean, all of Kubrick's films are very slow. Um, but 2001 especially. And so, you know, when I tell myself, well, I'm certainly not going to watch all of it, it's because who the fuck can get through it is what I'm thinking. But watching it this time around... I was really just kind of paying attention to like how information was revealed and uh, thinking about exposition and also just kind of sitting with this expectation of like, oh, this movie is very slow. So just kind of thinking about like, are there ways that this could have been tightened up? And I still think that's, that's, that's certainly true. I mean, you could certainly like cut out a lot of the silences, 
But when you actually look at what's happening in the movie in terms of plot, it's actually incredibly economical. And there's kind of three three parts, that, well, maybe even four parts, actually, that the movie kind of breaks into. There's kind of like the uh, preface or the introduction, which is like ancient history, where the monolith appears in front of the apes. Then there's this initial um, stellar journey uh, where you have this person who goes to, I think, one of the moons, goes to, I think, on the moon, actually, goes to see the monolith. It emits this high squeal tone. And then it cuts to this, I think, eight months later. I can't remember. 18 months later, I don't know. But the kind of main story that everybody thinks about when they think about 2001, which is you have these two men who are going to Jupiter. Um, uh, They have like three people on board who are in hibernation, and they're also joined by HAL 9000, which is the sort of AI computer. Also very interesting to watch this in light of the advent of things like ChatGPT and that sort of stuff. But when you watch the exposition for that scene, especially when you're finally on that space station, and you're shown, not told, you're shown what's going on and the way it uses uh, this kind of news briefing to kind of explain to you everything that's taking place. And as you're kind of watching the plot unfold between this sort of, uh, all of a sudden, Hal kind of asking questions of the crew and kind of becoming aware of the fact that uh, they could be unplugged or that type of thing, you actually realize that only things that contribute to the plot happen. There's actually nothing superfluous about it. The only reason the movie is slow and long is because of the duration of takes. But outside of that, it's one of the most economical movies that you're ever going to watch. And when you really think about it, when you watch those long sequences, you know, I think a lot of people think silence, but it's actually sound, which is really brilliant and it's really hard to do. It's actually sound that keeps the drama going. You know, there's this sequence where uh, What's-His-Butt is outside the space station and Hal is inside and using the distraction that's taking place to take the people who are in hibernation off life support and watching them die. And the way the sort of alarm bells sort of escalate, it's very slow, it's very methodical, but it's definitely there. The momentum is entirely carried by the sound of the film. And the other thing, too, which I knew, but it never really registered for me of how brilliant it was and why I think the movie is so timeless, is one, it's still insane that the the, the special effects, you know, of course, you realize that the pods and the practical movement that's happening in space, it doesn't really look convincing because it's on wires and stuff like that. But it makes a good case for the fact that at least if you're making a film, CGI is I don't want to say CGI is the enemy, because when it's used tastefully, it's very good. But all of these space movies, like Gravity is one of them, uh, or all these action films, you know, we think that CGI is helping us accomplish things that we couldn't accomplish otherwise, and that's certainly true. Meaning, if you want Godzilla and Mothra to be fighting, uh, uh, you know, knocking down the Golden Gate Bridge or whatever it is, yeah, you're going to need CGI to pull that off effectively, I think. But for the most part, one thing that should maybe even dictate the types of movies that we're making to some degree is how much of the of the practical or special effects can be done practically with actual things. Because although it's not convincing in kind of a, uh, I don't know, the physics are not convincing, or you're never for a moment thinking that you're actually in space, the sort of emotional or psychological effect is actually uh, amplified because you at least know from a creative standpoint what you're seeing is actually being executed 
by the actors and by the filmmakers. And again, it's not that it takes you into the world that convinces you that you're actually seeing people in space. It actually does something else, which is it actually kind of makes you in awe of what people are actually executing, you know? Because you know it's really happening. You think, wow, look at all the production and care that went into pulling off this practical effect. And that is, like, for example, I'm th for some reason I'm thinking of the Francis Ford Coppola version of Dracula, which is overlong and sentimental, and I don't think that it holds up very well. Meaning, for people like me, who it was a very formative film in their childhood, I think we kind of come and come to it and watch it and, and kind of get more out of it than somebody watching it today. But um, it's beautifully shot. And But the thing that's really wild is I think every single special effect in that movie was practical. Meaning, I think there's only one moment, there's like some blue flames kind of coming out of the ground that one of the chariots sort of passes through, which is a CGI effect. And there might be one other moment that's not coming to mind. Oh, I think it's like Dracula's eyes kind of appearing in the sky. But even then, I guess you could do that with like, I don't know. Um, I can't think of the word. Um, I don't know, just kind of practically putting film on top of itself. But uh, everything else is done practically. Even it actually has one of the coolest effects in film history where Dracula like turns into this big bat as he's trying to sneak into, uh, um, I can't think of the actress's name, uh, Winona Ryder's room or something like that. And when he like sort of recedes into the corner and he has these red glowing eyes, and then the minute they shine a light on him, he sort of turns instantly into this, you know, uh, collection of rats that sort of fall onto the floor. It's very, very cool. Um, but the point is, is that even if that movie doesn't necessarily hold up on an emotional level, or on some level, you always know when you see Gary Oldman that he's wearing makeup. I mean, you're never convinced that like there's a bat in front of you. The fact that it's being pulled off with practical effects, I think, has a much stronger, like, some psychological impact. Um, and again, it's that interesting part where on some level, we think what we want is to be convinced. Like, we want CGI to be very perfectly rendered. Uh, and in some ways, the way that CGI works best is when it's kind of happening in the background and you're not really realizing it. Like, when you watch these old films, like... Uh, Psycho or something, these black and white films where somebody's driving and it's so clearly uh, a screen or something that's kind of projected on the background, that can be very distracting. You know, when you watch most movies now, that's how most driving scenes are kind of pulled off. Um, but uh, yeah, so it can be done for those types of things. But uh, at the end of the day, yeah, yeah, I guess my takeaway from watching 2001 was, wow, how good are the effects actually? Look at how well they've held up. Especially that last, like the, I don't know what you would call it, like the Stargate or the time warp sequence, that kind of, the last 20 minutes of the film, you look at the, you know, when he's kind of going through the Stargate and you, you know, I have, I don't, I don't know how they pulled that off, but even that looks incredible by today's standards. And there's clearly kind of, I mean, there's actually only like two things that happen in it that I think are actually kind of silly. They do this kind of, they do this shot of like the astronaut's eye that kind of changes color. And I don't know how to describe, describe it, except they're, they're clearly messing with the exposure that kind of, is it C-M-Y-K, cyan, magenta, yellow? What's the K? I don't know. But the point is that they're, it's just this kind of basic effect that you could pull off in iPhoto or something like that, which at the time probably looked very cool. But they're kind of switching the color of the eye when it cuts to it. And then they do this like really horrible like landscape shots that I, I think are supposed to be the surface of a foreign planet. And they do the same kind of, you know, negative slash color effect or something like that, which is very silly. But 
the rest of that sequence, when the colors are kind of shooting at you, are brilliant. And they have to be animated or something. I don't know how they were done, but they just look so good. And they don't look dated whatsoever. And even more importantly, it cuts to these kind of shots that I don't know how they were pulled off. They all, But the, they, they couldn't have been computer generated because the fidelity of the image is just too... It's too crisp. It's too good. But you have these kind of like celestial slash, um, uh, I can't think of the word. A gelatinous was a word that we used last time. Um, they have this kind of amorphous, but also like celestial look to them. And they're supposed to be like probably like auroras and uh, exploding stars or whatever they're supposed to be. But they look so good. And you just think, how is this pulled off? It had to have been done practically. In a way, it almost looks like liquid or something like that. So I don't know if they like kind of macro shot, like dyed liquid in a way that I'm not really sure of. But whatever it is, it's just so good. And it's just evidence that, you know, when you watch movies like The Flash and he's like running through space and there's like blue fire and it's it's all, you know, you have planets colliding and exploding into each other. It's all nonsense. But you watch something that's just pulled off practically. It doesn't have to be the thing itself, even if it's just suggestive but it's actually done. It's just exponentially more impressive, you know? So anyway, I'm not sure what the point of that is, except we want real. You know, at least I do. Or at least I, I think I do. I think one of the things that's kind of insidious is the minute you say, oh, everything should be, could be, done, should be done practically, I think we're also not aware how ubiquitous CGI is. Meaning, you know, I've seen things like, when you're watching a movie, now, because one people are trying to keep costs down because nobody goes to see movies anymore. But most of the time, like 90% of what's on screen was just not even there. Like most of acting is like all green screen acting. Now, even if people are shooting on location, so much of the space is just generated in CGI, which uh, is just crazy to me, but, but so be it. Um, meaning I also think it's, it's hard to get on your soapbox and talk about like, it's one of those things where it's like, we, we certainly know bad CGI when we see it, but we don't know good CGI when we see it. For some reason, I'm also thinking about like auto-tune on vocals and music, which is, it's very easy to take that position of like, oh man, uh, auto-tune is for people who can't sing, like, you know, Britney Spears or Katy Perry. I think those people probably can sing at the end of the day. But it's like, we only say that, or share, like we only know that, we only know bad auto-tune. But the, at the end of the day, every single major artist uses auto-tune. That's just the way it is. And even the people who are probably convinced that their favorite artist doesn't use auto-tune, there probably are a couple who might or use it selectively. But I would argue if you're a major artist operating in, you know, I don't know how you delimit these things, but if you're a major artist operating in like the popular music space, you're using auto-tune. It's just the fact that we can't hear it that people aren't aware of it. And so, I don't know, it could be that CGI is sort of functioning on that level as well. Yep. Well, there we go. We have about five minutes left, and uh, I'm coming to that part where I feel like I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about and uh, why we've ended up here. Uh, but so be it. I mean, I think the only other thing that's kind of flitting around in my mind is uh, I'm really enjoying... I probably talked about this, but I, I'm really enjoying this unit in class that's kind of about uh, Spanish encounters with the Aztecs and their culture. So, 
it actually makes me think as I'm talking about these cosmogonies and how they, you know, this idea of Bauman's first principles of science and all creation stories have these sort of these common features to them. I realize it's not the Aztecs, but it's like it makes me want to go back and reread Popol Vuh and see how much of that sort of conforms to this theory as well. <clears throat> but yeah, I don't know. Frankly, I'm boring myself right now. I'm at that point where I realize, I, I know I've run out of things to say, and I know we have, uh, well, I know I have a time commitment that I usually try to keep to, but I'm also wondering if it wouldn't be better to just kind of cut things short. Um, is there anything I can say to stall for time? Mm, I'm literally looking around me and seeing if anything sort of catches my eye here. I don't know. My brother just texted me a photo of his dog. Adorable. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm boring myself, and uh, I think we've said everything we need to say. So I'm not thrilled about it. I'm not I'm not, not, not happy to see myself doing this. Uh, there's a part of me that, that is, is telling myself to just sit here in silence because, you know, who, the, who, who, who cares? But... I'm also feeling there might be some type of virtue in, um, I don't know, just sort of cutting things off. Although I hate to end on this note. I feel like, you know, you've been sitting through this record for almost an hour now, and this is where it ends up. In a way, I, I you know, I was talking about movies and saying, but the fun part is seeing how things unfold, and I don't want to spoil the ending for you. And lo and behold, um, this is where we end up. I will say, and again, if you haven't seen the movie... Don't listen to this, because I really, this is something I definitely don't want to spoil for you. But as I'm saying that this is kind of coming to a poor conclusion, I will say, interestingly enough, this movie Fair Play, the final moments of the movie, literally the last like three minutes, feel a little unearned. You know, the movie really is kind of building into this tension, and like it has this kind of, uh, uh, what's it was it not catharsis, not apotheosis, what's the word I'm looking for? Is it denouement? I think that's the word, where the sort of... There's the rising action and things really kind of come to a head. And then there's like the falling action of the film. The last like three minutes just feel a little unearned where, I don't know, it's a little disappointing to see somebody kind of pulling off this very delicate balance. They're like spinning plates. And it's not just, I mean, movies are hard enough to make as they are. But I mean, you're also dealing with someone who's kind of navigating this very like sensitive topic um, that, you know, for someone to try to deal artfully for some reason, I'm also, what's the movie, um, Tar, right, uh, that dealt with uh, power, but uh, did a very good job of, like, subverting expectations of filmgoers by placing a female in the lead. Meaning, if it was just a film about a male conductor who abused their power in a conservatory setting to, like, uh, lure young, beautiful violin players into their bed or something like that. It just would have been very easy for people to kind of roll their eyes at it and just dismiss it as like a polemical film. But when you tell the exact same story with Kate Blanchett as the lead, and you're seeing everything that a guy would do in that scenario being carried, about, carried out by a female, it's actually much easier to come closer to the material and to take it seriously, especially as a, as a male, which actually says something about our defensiveness. But the point I'm trying to make is that to create an artful film that deals with these sort of contemporary topics around me too or toxic masculinity uh it's hard to do so it was a little disappointing to see it handled so deftly and then maybe kind of stutter step in the end but 
what can I say? At the end of the day, I'm really trading on that to uh, to kind of get us over the finish line, which I've done. So yay, yay, I got us to the finish line. Yay, I started looking at my thesis. Yay, I watched 2001 all the way through and I really enjoyed it. And uh, you should too. So maybe that will be a homework assignment I give you. If you have never seen 2001 A Space Odyssey or uh, if you haven't seen it in a while, why don't you rewatch it? And, uh, you know, I would say let me know what you think, but we both know that's not possible. Um, but anyway, yeah, another uh, entry here under the belt. And uh, I'll just say thanks for tuning in. I'll look forward to doing the same thing next week. And until then, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And ciao for now.